0: Holy Scripture from the book of Genesis, Chapter twenty nine Genesis, Chapter twenty nine. Just to uh, remind you a bit of the context, this chapter begins shortly after Jacob, along with his mother Rebekah, deceived Isaac by pretending to be Esau, and then he was forced to flee because Esau threatened to murder him. And there on his journey, he saw a vision of God with the angels going up the ladder, at Bethel, and then he comes to the house of Laban, and he begins to have his family. And all of this is significant in light of the birth of Judah, which is the final verse. But let's read, beginning in verse one of Genesis chapter 29. And then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the East. And he looked, and behold Hold a well in the field, and, lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with a sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot, until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, and she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son, And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel, and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I, I should give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but a few days, for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning... Behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me for yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text for the sermon this evening is the last verse, verse 35. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the best known stories in the book of Genesis, and really in the Bible itself, is the story of Joseph. And that's likely due to the many practical lessons that we learn from Joseph's life. You remember some of those practical stories from Joseph's life. Tempted with adultery, Joseph preferred to flee and even to go to prison rather than sin against his God. Abused by his jealous brothers, Joseph forgave them and even became their benefactor and protector in the land of Egypt. Betrayed, sold into slavery, lied about, falsely accused, isolated, and alone, Joseph never lost his faith but persevered. Even when he was elevated to power as the second most powerful man in the greatest kingdom of the world at that time, Joseph never forgot about his God but lived in the hope of the promise of the covenant. Joseph stands out as the paradigm of a godly person, Joseph is also a very significant figure in the book of Genesis and the story that is unfolding there. His elevation in Egypt was the providential means that God used to save the whole family of Jacob and preserve them in the midst of the famine that ravaged the land of Canaan at the time. You cannot understand the book of Genesis or what happens after the book of Genesis with the Exodus without knowing something about Joseph. But for all that, Joseph is not the most important character in the story of redemption that is playing out in this part of the Word of God. The Bible has a striking way of reversing our expectations when it comes to the ways of God. You would think in light of Joseph's godliness and importance, that Joseph would be the heir of his father Jacob. Surely it will be through the generations of Joseph that God will fulfill his promise to provide the covenant seed, the promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But if you were to think that way, you would be wrong. Not from Joseph, but Christ will descend from one of the most nefarious characters ever to appear in the pages of Scripture. Rather than to flee sexual sin, this man from whom Christ descended was a notorious adulterer. Rather than to forgive those who sinned against him, this man from whom Christ descended was vindictive and ruthless. Rather than to trust in God, this man from whom Christ descended lived most of his life trusting in himself And in his own cleverness, his name was Judah. I hope to tell the story of Judah, not just tonight, but in a series of sermons that I want to introduce with this story of Judah's birth. Obviously, as I pointed out, there is a bigger story unfolding in the book of Genesis that involves Joseph and the rest of the family of Jacob. We're going to be skipping around within that bigger story in order to highlight the main events in Judah's life that draw out the significance of this specific character. But as we do so, I hope we will see why it is that God was pleased to designate this man, Judah, as the ancestor and in some ways the type of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And it really is a striking and beautiful story, one of my personal favorite stories in the Bible. So let's consider together tonight Judah's birth. We will notice in the first place that Judah was born in ominous circumstances. Secondly, that he was born out of Jehovah's pity. And then finally, as his name indicates, Judah was born to the praise of God. Judah's birth, first in ominous circumstances, secondly of Jehovah's pity, and finally to the praise of God. So let's take a look at the situation that existed when a baby named Judah was born into this world. Judah's father was a refugee whose name was Jacob. Jacob left his home and went on the run probably about 10 years or so before Judah was born. The reason Jacob had to leave his home and go on the run is because he was threatened by his brother Esau who was intending to murder him. Now Esau was certainly wrong to threaten his brother in this way whom he clearly hated. And as we know, according to God's eternal decree, it is not Jacob or not Esau whom God loved, but rather Jacob. Nevertheless, the occasion for Jacob having to flee from Esau's threat is that Jacob cleverly deceived his father Isaac by Mimicking Esau and standing in his place in order to receive the blessing with Isaac being unaware of what he was doing. Then at his parents' urging when all of the deception came out he had to flee to his uncle Laban's house. After he arrived at Uncle Laban's house, Jacob very quickly began to make arrangements to marry the beautiful girl whom he met there. The younger daughter of Laban caught Jacob's eye and he was smitten by her almost at first sight. He agreed then to work seven years for Rachel to be his bride and he loved her so much, that is, he was so infatuated with her, that those seven years seemed to pass like a few days. But we know from the rest of the Bible that God is not mocked. And what a man sows, that will he also reap in his life. And so the deceiver, Jacob, who pulled a fast one on his father and on his brother, ends up getting played by his trickster uncle. Exactly how Laban pulled this off is a bit of a mystery to us especially since we're not familiar with the marriage customs of the time, and it's probably going to remain a bit of a mystery to us due to the historical distance. Nevertheless, one factor that might help explain how he did this is that in those days, a bride wore a veil, a veil that completely obscured her face, and that veil was only taken away in the darkness of the bridal chamber after the wedding ceremony was complete, after a day of feasting and almost certainly wine drinking, and then consider that Leah and Rachel were sisters who probably had a similar height and a similar build. They didn't have the same eyes, apparently, and they didn't have the same facial features, but generally looked similar. However, he pulled it off. Laban set up Jacob for the surprise of his life when he woke up the next morning As verse 25 reports, and it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it wasn't Rachel who Jacob thought he was marrying and with whom Jacob thought he was consummating his marriage, but it was Leah. Now, at this point, there were a few options open to Jacob. Probably the best option would be to submit. To this unforeseen circumstance and receive it as God's will. Yes, Laban is a fraud and a trickster, yet the consummation has taken place. Leah is now bound to me as my flesh. I will learn to love her in time, and I better just accept this. That would be one option, probably the best option. Perhaps another option would be to call out the fraud. And refused to recognize this as a legitimate marriage. Laban, I agreed to marry Rachel. She's the wife that I worked for seven years. I was espoused to her. Give me my wife. This marriage that you set up isn't a legitimate marriage. It was done under false pretenses. Now that would have put Jacob in a precarious position since he was living under Laban's roof and effectively at Laban's mercy, having no wealth of his own. But that would at least seem to be fair in light of the fact that he had been deceived. But Jacob does not take either of those options in this difficult situation. Instead, he goes down the path that Laban had spun for him and created for him. He keeps Leah as his wife. And then he marries Rachel as well and becomes a polygamist and therefore sets up the stage For untold misery and chaos that is going to ensue. There were no specific laws as of yet that spelled out that a man may not have two wives, as in the book of Leviticus and Numbers had not yet been written. But Jacob was about to learn the hard way why it was from the beginning that God said, A man shall leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, not wives, but to his wife. Well, in any, way, any case, just a few years after this polygamous knot was set into place, Judah was born. And Judah was not the son of the favored and chosen wife of Jacob. Rachel's womb was shut up for the time being by the Lord, and she had no children. Judah was rather the fourth son born to Leah. First there was Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, and now Judah. Judah was thus born to the hated wife of the deceiver, Jacob. That hated wife who was, admittedly herself, a bit of a trickster and a deceiver. We tend to see Leah in this story as the innocent bystander and victim of Laban's treachery and Jacob's callousness and his refusal to love her, but do take into consideration what Leah herself did. She entered into the bridal chamber of her sister and consummated a marriage under false pretenses. Leah did that. She may have done that at the instigation of her father, but she did it without ever breathing a word as to the truth when it was in her power to do so. In other words, Leah did play a key part in this deception. That does not help excuse the fact that Jacob hated her, as we read in verse 31. It says that Leah was hated right after pointing out in verse 30 that Rachel that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then verse 31 describes that as hatred. Jacob hated her. That doesn't... Leah's deception of Jacob does not excuse Jacob's hatred of her, but it does help us to understand the force of Jacob's hatred. Some commentaries I read say that Jacob did not really hate her. He just loved her less. Rachel was loved and Leah was neglected and unloved, but you really have to read the text more strongly than that. Jacob hated her. Jacob despised Leah. He did. Later on, he would be brought to greater wisdom in this regard, and he would see that the hand of God was working in this whole situation. There's one specific and telling instance that shows that Jacob came to that greater wisdom. It's in Genesis 49, verse 31, when Jacob is at the end of his life, and he's telling his sons that they must bury him in the cave of Machpelah, not in Egypt. And he He wants them to bury him in the cave of Machpelah because that's where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah were buried. That's where the patriarchs were buried, buried in hope of God fulfilling his promise in the land of Canaan. And he indicates in Genesis 49 verse 31 that he also buried Leah there. Not Rachel, but Leah. So Jacob comes around in the end. But he hasn't come around to it yet. Here in the heat of the deception... In the early days of this bigamous marriage, Jacob hated Leah. Hated her for her deception. Hated her because she was not the wife that he chose. She was the wife that was foisted upon him. He hated her. And Judah knew it. He knew it as a little boy. He knew it when he grew up and became a teenager and a young adult. His father hated his mother. She was inferior to the other wife. And he, as her son, and not the son of the favored wife, was inferior to the other sons. We say this was ominous as far as Judah's life in the future is concerned. None of this that we have just talked about was Judah's fault, of course. All of these events took place over Judah's head. Without his participation or knowledge, Judah did not deceive Jacob into marrying his mother Leah. That was Laban. Judah did not set up a rivalry of wives in his family. That was his father Jacob who did that. Judah did not as yet personally hate anyone. He was just a child The fact that Judah was born into this dysfunctional and chaotic environment does not excuse his later sins, as we will see. Yet the circumstances themselves, as such, were not Judah's fault. He was simply born into them. But you can see, can't you? Seeds being sown. Judah is going to grow into a schemer. A schemer who is not above selling other people for his own personal advantage and gain. Judah is going to become an adulterer who visits prostitutes and then carefully covers it up. Judah is going to be a man full of hatred and murder in his heart and ruthlessness in his soul. And where did that all come from? the inheritance that he received from his father Jacob and his mother Leah. In part, that's because of the environment that they created before Judah was born, which environment Judah was born into. On a deeper level, it's because of the corruption that was in the hearts of Judah's parents, Jacob and Leah, who themselves were totally depraved sinners and could only pass that corruption onto their son, Judah. So Judah also was conceived and born in sin, but this whole situation, it's ominous. It's ominous for the future. The story ought to tell us something about the consequences of the actions that we take. Christian young people, think very carefully about the person you will get married to. That decision is going to impact you for the rest of your life. Part of Jacob's problem in all this seems to be he wasn't thinking about what God wants in all these things. What Jacob was thinking about was the fire that he saw in Rachel's eyes. What Jacob was thinking about was the way Rachel made him feel. What Jacob was thinking about was how he was at the mercy of his uncle Laban, how he had no wealth of his own, how he had to make his way in this world. What Jacob was thinking about, most of all, was himself, in other words. And the result is he tied himself and many others, his wives and his children, into a terrible, terrible knot that was not easily unwound. Christian young person, who will be your spouse? And why that person? You need to be thinking bigger than how you feel today. You need to be asking the question, what does God want in your marriage? What does God say your priorities must be when looking for a wife or a husband? And let the story of Jacob and his family make you realize There are lasting consequences that come from this decision. But what about when an existing marriage comes in trouble? What about when a man no longer feels charmed by his wife the way he used to feel? What about when a woman gets tired of dealing with the constant weaknesses of her husband? You never would have thought on your wedding day, never would have thought it possible that you would start daydreaming. What would it be like? What would it be like if I had a different spouse? If I was married to somebody else? What if I just divorce? Start over? What if I go to a different church that will let me do that? We'll wink at it. But there are consequences in decisions like that as well. Lasting consequences. Consequences for yourself personally and for your spouse. But maybe more importantly, consequences for the little children. Little children who now will be tossed back and forth from one house to another. And regardless of all the explanations that are given to them by the adults, they will know. Intuitively, they will understand it's not just because dad and mom fell out of love. Not just because of irreconcilable differences. Because of hatred. Hatred crept in between my father and my mother. My mom hates my dad. My dad hates my mom. That's why this happened. Judah knew it. He knew. So do the thousands and thousands of children living in broken homes today. There are consequences for the actions that we take There should also be some encouragement for us here, though, especially if we do come from a broken home. You might think the heroes in the Bible are all perfect people. You might think that they all come from perfect families and perfect homes. Think again. Jacob. This is the man whose name was given to the nation, the covenant nation, Israel, prince of God. But who was Jacob? He was a liar. He was a deceiver who made a mess out of his life and the life of his wives and the lives of his children. He was a man who needed God and his grace to come and pick up the pieces. Judah who is Judah? He's the ancestor of King David. He's the father of Jesus Christ, who the book of Revelation says is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But who was Judah? He was a man who was bro- born into a broken home, which became the occasion for him to act out in all sorts of sinful and evil ways before he was brought to repentance before God redeemed him. See, the God we believe in and the God we serve is a God of redemption and restoration. He himself is perfect, but he knows what we are. Miserable sinners who have broken lives and painful histories. And he can, and he will, and he does put the pieces back together. According to his sovereign will and good pleasure, he can and he will and he does heal that which is wounded, bring life out of death. His salvation does not depend on us and our strength, thank God. His salvation rather assumes our weakness. We're saved by grace and pity. And there is evidence of that pity in this story as well. That brings us to the second point. When you look at this woman, Leah, immediately after the wedding, you're looking at a very wretched person. No doubt She's experiencing a fair amount of guilt due to her participation in the deception. Now you might ask the question, could Leah really have done anything differently? Could she have acted against the wishes of her manipulative, deceptive father, Laban? Yes. At the very least, she could have spoken up she could have told Jacob what was gonna happen and then borne the consequences. But it's just as likely that Leah was a willing accomplice in the whole affair. Leah wanted a husband. Leah was jealous of the fact that Jacob was attracted to Rachel, her younger sister, and that she now would go on unmarried as her younger sister became the husband or became the wife of the young man who came out of nowhere. But however you look at it, Leah was involved in the trick. She sinned against Jacob. She sinned against Rachel. She sinned against God. And no doubt, she's feeling the guilt of that and the implications of it. Then there's the memory of that awful morning after the deception comes to light. Can you imagine... that change in Jacob's face from tenderness and affection to shock and horror when he sees what happened. And then, I don't think it's too much of an embellishment of the text to imagine Jacob storming out of the room and Leah sitting there listening down the hall, to a shouting match that begins to erupt. Laban, what have you done to me? For seven years I served you. Not for Leah. For Rachel, why have you beguiled me? Why have you deceived me? What have you done? If Leah, if Leah imagined that Jacob would be okay with it when he realized who was in his bed with him, and that it was a different woman, and the woman he was engaged to and thought he was marrying, she was mistaken. And that, then, was the first day in the rest of her life. Rejection. Terribly painful to be rejected, especially by somebody whose affections you crave and crave deeply. Leah wanted Jacob to love her and to love her the way that obviously he loved Rachel. You see it. You see it in what unfolds. You see it in the way she names her children and the reason she gives for those names. Surely, when she names Reuben, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me because I have a child. Because the Lord has heard that I was hated, he therefore hath given me this son also. Now this time my husband will be, will be joined to me, because I have borne for him three sons. You can't read that without feeling there's something pathetic about it all. You can sense the idolatry that was there in Leah's soul, the hunger for love, the love of her husband. Love that evidently was not satisfied with Jehovah and his love. And yet she's pitiable. She's the picture of emptiness and destitution. The first casualty in this broken, messed up family. But Jehovah saw her. Verse thirty one. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now take note of that language. That's a special kind of seeing. It's the kind of seeing that might be in your eyes and in your heart if you see an orphan running naked through the streets. It's the seeing of pity. It's the seeing of mercy. Compassion that reaches out and wants to help. God saw Leah, saw her in her misery, saw her in her forsakenness, and seeing her, desired to lift her up out of that misery. So he opened her womb. Now we need to be very careful about the kind of practical lessons we draw from this part of the story. There's a similar story in the book of Samuel of a man with two wives, one barren and the other with children. And in that story, it's the barren woman whom God sees. Her name was Hannah. Having children or being barren is not itself an indicator of whether one is the object of God's mercy. But here, in this specific story, in this specific context, God was making a specific point. As Jacob, no doubt, is envisioning the child of promise who will be born from Rachel, his chosen wife. So he thought. God turns his wisdom into foolishness and he shuts up Rachel's womb for the time being. And instead, he opens the womb of that other woman, that woman whom Jacob hated and despised. One Two, three, four sons born. Rapid succession. And oh, how those sons were going to cause problems for Jacob. All four of them. Read the record. Murder, adultery, even incest. And yet from one of those four sons would be born Moses and Aaron and the entire Levitical order of the priesthood. That was Levi. The third son, and from another of those sons would be born the Christ, the covenant seed, who was promised to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. That, beloved, is God's way. It's like He purposely picks out the most wretched and weak person and chooses that person, this one, not the loved one, not the one who is beautiful and well-favored, who commands the affections of her husband, Leah. Despised, hated, rejected Leah. She will be the mother of Judah. And from her son, I will bring forth my own son, who will come and who will redeem them all. Not the wise and not the mighty, But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And to be clear, beloved, that's not just the way it works with Leah. That's how it works with you too. And that's how it works with me. The foolish, the weak, the rejected the despised. Those who get themselves tied up into knots because they follow their sinful passions and make foolish decisions. Those are the ones God redeems. Those are the ones God chooses. Not the whole, not the healthy, not the righteous, but the sick and the needy and the unrighteous. That's us. Beloved, that's us, that's you, that's me. If that's not us, if that's not how we see ourselves and know ourselves, then of all men we are most miserable, because then God will not see us. He will not see us the way he saw Leah, anyway, with eyes of pity, because then we will be like the proud Pharisees. Then we will be like Jacob, at least like Jacob as he was in this story the Jacob who had a lot of learning to do before he was brought to his wit's end. I think he knew it, beloved. He knew that God was going to give the covenant seed through Leah. He got the message. He connected the dots. And that's why she stopped bearing. As the text says, She didn't stop bearing because she suddenly became infertile. We know she didn't become infertile because later on in the next chapter, we read of her bearing two more sons. She stopped having children because Jacob stopped going in unto her and only went in unto Rachel. How desperate he was that Rachel, his chosen wife, would bear the son of promise He would make sure there will be no more sons born of Leah, lest the covenant seed is born of her. But God was already two steps ahead of him. For Judah was already born. And God had pity on that little child Judah as well. God had pity on all of them, beloved. On Jacob, on Leah, on Rachel, on all their children. Don't let all these failures and sins you see in them make you put on your judge's cap. That's not the point of this story. These were all God's children, secure in His love, being sanctified by the power of His grace even though they had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But God had pity on Judah. As I said in the introduction, this child will grow up to be one of the most nefarious characters in the Bible. We're going to get into that in the series. But already before any of that happens, before... Judah so much as lifts a finger. God knew him, chose him, and loved him as his own son for the sake of the Christ who was in him. Christ was in that little child, that little baby, Judah, and would be born from his loins in his generations. Whatever sins and unbelief would be manifested in Judah, and oh, there would be all kinds of sins, all kinds of unbelief, It didn't change the fact that the Lord had pity on him. All it did is make the good shepherd all the more determined to reach out with cords of love and draw to himself the sheep who was lost. And that also is how we must know ourselves. For the one whom God loves, there is no amount of sin or rebellion that can ultimately override his will. All that sin and rebellion and stubbornness only brings to light how great the mercy and the grace of God is when finally He overcomes us. He gave His Son for us, beloved, to die on the cross for us while we were acting like His enemies. Leah seems to have understood this in the end which helps explain the name that she gives to Judah and her reason for it. And that brings us to the final point. It's noteworthy when you look at the naming of the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, that Leah is evidently still hungering for Jacob's love. She knows that Jehovah has shown her pity by opening her womb, but... She finds a way of connecting this fact back to her own needs and her own suffering. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will no longer hate me. Now my husband will be joined unto me because I have these children. But notice that all changes when Judah is born. Is she simply disillusioned and giving up on Jacob ever loving her? I don't think that's the reason for the change. I think rather it's an indicator that she has grown spiritually and has begun to trust in the Lord. Her explanation for Judah's name has nothing to do with herself or her relationship to Jacob, unlike the first three. Instead, it has everything to do with the Lord. The Lord who has seen her. The Lord who has known her. The Lord who has pitied her. And she wants to praise him. Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And left bearing. And that's what the name Judah means. Comes from the root in the Hebrew. That means to praise. Now I will praise the Lord. And I will dedicate this child. To the praise of Jehovah. For that's why I'm here. And that's why he's here. And his whole life. My life depends on the mercy of this great God who sees me. Now, this does not mean Leah has finally arrived spiritually, or that she is no longer progressing in her sanctification, far from it. Just turn the page, read the rest of the story of the birth wars that are unfolding between Rachel and Leah. It gets uglier. And it continues to get uglier before it ever gets better. And it seems as though Leah herself did not live long enough to see it begin to get better. She was buried in the cave of Machpelah time before Judah and Joseph and his brothers were all reconciled in the land of Egypt. Leah still had some sanctification to take place here. Nevertheless, the Lord brought her to faith. And by faith led her to praise him and dedicate her son To the praise of the Lord. What about you, beloved people of God? Why do you desire to have children if you don't have them? Why do you long for the affection of a husband or a wife if you don't have one? Why do you seek to do anything? anything at all? What's the purpose of your life? Is it not to enjoy the God who made you, who sees you, who redeemed you, and then to glorify him forever? Is it not to dedicate your children to his service and to plant the seeds of faith in their life by teaching them the fear of the Lord? It can be painful when life does not go the way we expect or the way we desire. When factors outside of our control take us in directions that we never foresaw. When things fall to pieces. When relationships spiral. But this is why we're here, beloved. This is why everything around you happens the way it does. Not so that we may be praised so that God may be praised. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the stories in Thy Word, real historical stories, with stories with profound lessons and truths for us that illustrate the gospel and its implications for our lives. We pray, O Father, that... That thou would help us and that Thou would see us, whatever our situation may be in life, whether it is similar to the broken situation that existed in the household of Jacob, or whether it is a different situation. Nevertheless, we pray for Thy mercy. We pray for Thy forgiveness and Thy redeeming grace. And we pray that Thou would give us the perspective and the strength in our lives to understand why we are here and to live every life, every moment for the praise of the glory of thy grace. Hear us, not because we are worthy, but for the sake of Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.